Before we start the show, we wanted to let you know that on the 27th of February, our very own David Breer and Sam Moore will square off in a fintech face-off, joined by some very special guests, including Bo Hartman, Richard Davies, Sarah Kachansky, and Bill Sullivan. It'll be Europe versus the US, facing off in a transatlantic debate to decide who's the best for fintech. It'll be live streamed, hosted by Capgemini and LinkedIn. Don't miss out. You can sign up at faceoff.11fs.com to watch the fight and back either side. That's faceoff.11fs.com. Who's going to win? From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up, Bitcoin's worst week since 2013, how the US can do better at the UK at open banking, and we speak to Richard Davies about TSB's investment in the SME sector. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. We are here in the 11FS offices in WeWork Oldgate. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Jason Bates. How are you doing, Jason? I'm tired today. I'm feeling tired. Like I've got my my beer in hand, but we've got some super smart guests, so I'm hoping I can just like fade gently into the background, like that Homer Simpson gif, and just let the intelligence, you know, banter wave around me. Speaking of intelligence, uh, we we have the one and only Chris Skinner, Eleven of S, non-exec director, author, speaker, blogger, guru. And there is life on planet Earth. More life here than there is next to me and Jason. Is there more life in that car that's on its way to Mars that Elon sent Space Odyssey repeated endlessly until it gets to Mars. The aliens will be wondering what the hell it is. Well, speaking of astronomical insight and intellect, we have the one and only Tanya Andresen, the editor of Banking Technology. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to have you here. We have... Christian Luoma, the head of the OP lab. Uh, we're down with OP. How are you, Christian? Very good. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. And finally, making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Cliff Evans, who's the head of digital banking at Capgemini. Welcome to the show, Cliff. Welcome. Good to be here. I'm, I'm stopping over on my flight from uh, Middle East onto Belgium. So it's will be an interesting session to keep me awake. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's... I'm sorry, I've got to keep you awake. I've got to keep Jason awake. <laughs> God, we need some and, caffeine. And I'm coming from Singapore as well so <laughs> this is gonna be an exciting one guys <laughs> all right um speaking of things going down to sleep uh it looks like the stock market took a bit of a tumble um it was pretty pretty big quote-unquote crash that happened uh, last monday as you listen to this uh and cryptocurrency went down so what's going on here there was a story in the bbc where FTSE had the lowest day since april 2017 chris do you have some thoughts on this well, the stock markets are swinging downwards, mainly on bad news coming from the US about employment and interest rates likely to rise there. But I do love the fact that the fact that the FTSE went down a few percent compared to what's happening in cryptocurrencies. Actually, it just suddenly makes the volatility of the normal markets just seem like a, the smallest blip on an average Wednesday afternoon. I mean, to put it in perspective, I had $100 worth of cryptocurrency at Christmas. And by the middle of January, the end of January, it's worth about $30. And today it's worth about 55 So it kind of shows it's just weird. And what's driving that is basically an awful lot of people and governments in particular trying to ban Bitcoin, for example, but they can't. But isn't, isn't it um, part of it? It's an interesting debate that is Bitcoin a currency? Because to 
a lot of organizations say it's a commodity. So in a sense, is it a commodity burst bubble and it's a commodity going up? So maybe it's swinging more like you'd expect a commodity than actually a, a currency. Well, so the CFTC commissioner and the SEC commissioner um, both gave public statements a couple of days ago on exactly this uh, to the to US Congress. Uh, and it was interesting that the CFTC commissioner said in commodity land, exactly as you say, Cliff, we, we're used to volatility. Volatility is entirely normal. Uh, calling it currency may have just been really bad branding. And indeed, uh, prices had fallen uh, all the way down to nearly uh, just below $6,000 um, before bouncing back. Well, today, as we record this on Thursday, the 8th of February, uh, they're sitting around $8,300. So, Tanya, Bitcoin's dead, long live Bitcoin? I think that has been discussed so many times before. The first thing that came to my mind when this happened is I woke up to my mailbox with hundreds of PR people offering expert commentary on what's happening, mainly from people who have no involvement with it whatsoever. So just wanted to say, please, PR people, if you're listening, stop, stop. But isn't that the best thing about the movement of markets? Because ultimately, no one has the faintest idea why why this occurred, even in, either in the traditional markets or the Bitcoin or the, or the crypto yeah. markets. So everyone's view is, you know, arguably correct, depending on... You know what? That's absolutely true. Unfortunately, everybody's view was so bland and generic. I have a feeling that there is one book, you know, with words and phrases that, you know, that people use and just like mix them around and put them together into a sort of comment and send it out. So yeah, it feels like we could have a bot, we could have a commentary bot on the markets and we could just throw in these phrases and it could come out with with commentary. All really simple. People thought regulators were going to kill the currency and then they didn't and then the market recovered. I mean, it doesn't need expert commentary to figure that out. It was kind of obvious. But it was was a speculation in the first place though, wasn't it? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it was rising on the basis of nothing. It was rising on the basis of people speculating that people were speculating i heard people say how how long is it going to take to get to 10 20 dollars so people are speculating on a commodity to go into it so in a way the, the it's probably a good thing because it means actually if it's going to be a currency it needs to get a level that can treat as a currency whereas if it's treated as a speculative thing it it doesn't become a useful item well because we lived in a market without volatility christian for a long time haven't we so yeah maybe it is but, but then again you know over over months of time if you if you see uh, the trends it's still way up uh, since 12 months ago and and 12, 24 months ago so I, I guess this is uh taking it back to normal and uh, you know the fluctuations are to be expected still there were two tweets that made me laugh that came out around this time. One was from John McAfee doubling down on his million dollar per Bitcoin bet. And if it doesn't get there by 2020, he's going to eat his penis live on TV. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. John McAfee has lost Mark your calendars. But McAfee has lost it, hasn't he? He has definitely lost it. Or he has made significant investments and wants to speculate it up. Well, the other one that made me laugh was um, real Donald Trump um, ha- tweeting in 2015 that if the stock market lost more than a thousand basis points in a day, then the president at that time should be shot into space. And <laughs> oh yeah, he, he it, also it misspelled. News, he also misspelled Jones in that tweet. <laughs> I think Elon's done it for us. We haven't heard from Trump in a couple of days. He's not been tweeting. Maybe he's been shot into space. So I, did, I did wonder if he'd be in, in, in the spacesuit in the car, you know, sort of singing along with space Oddity. I, I think Elon just is going for sainthood. I 
I think that's what's happening. But the, linked to the first story, I mean, uh, the VIX, which is a measure of volatility in markets, has spiked for the first time. And we've seen with interest rates being low, with easing being the norm, that volatility disappeared from the market. But volatility may be coming back to markets because we're getting back to normal a decade on from the financial crisis. Um, but volatility, um, Bitcoin's like, hey, hold my beer. I got this. <laughs> All right. Uh, next story is uh, it's time for open banking. We need to hit the open banking klaxon. First story from uh, American Banker, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Laura. Laura, thank you for submitting this. Shout out to producer Laura. How the US can avoid the UK's mistakes in open banking. So this story recaps some of the US, uh, some of the coverage over here, um, calling attention to the risks of fraud and cyber attacks. And we've talked about this a couple of times on the show. Basically, the mainstream media response seems to be, open banking's really scary, run. And I wonder who that's being briefed to the journals by. But anyway, the, the article says, to get ahead of the issue, banks in the US should invest in broad customer outreach campaigns that explain what open banking is and what it means for customers, including the new types of services and experiences it will enable. Do you have any thoughts on this one, Tanya? Well, that does make perfect sense, indeed. If nobody has told the average, you know, John Doe in the street uh, about the benefits of open banking, or even what open banking is, suddenly to expect everybody going, yay, open banking, wonderful. And at the same time, you have mass media that love scary stories, right? It's like you've got to create a headline in a story that would petrify people because that will mean that they will buy a newspaper or read it online, you know, click on it. And we all know the kind of media that does that, um, you know, Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, you know, that, that's, that's easy to predict, you know, the, the outcome. Um, open banking in the U.S., I'm not sure if it's ever going to work and how, you know, the country is so fragmented. You have so many different laws on the state level, on the, you They'll know, nationwide level. So, first, yeah, <laughs> and they still sign for their, you know, for their payments, for the cards. So, you it, know, they're miles away. It's a market-driven market, isn't it? Are you seeing any uh, movement in the U.S. cliffs? Um, so I guess I would I would equate the U.S. to what, what's happened in Southeast Asia. I, I don't think it's going to be a regulated move, but it's going to be a pull move. I Personally, I, I don't think an outreach program is going to help. I think it's actually going to be the consumers saying i want to do things differently and if you just look at where wechat's going and and how they're going to come in it will be somebody like that coming in and making things available and the consumer saying i like this and all the other banks saying well if i don't join this game i'm not in the game so if you look at a, you know you, you go to um san francisco and you'll you use a stripe or you'll pay on yeah, so these th services are already there and then the question is at what point does somebody plug into the services you're already using and that puts the pressure on the bank. So I think it's, I don't think it will, I don't think it is something they can promote. It will be a pull. It'll be people will drag it in. But but still, I think we're lacking kind of the main use cases why people would be excited about the open banking movement. We're we're making it way too technical and about the regulations. And I I think that it's more about finding those those use cases, killer apps that actually are driving the usage, and then we can see the trust follow as well. Um, nobody, nobody will be trusting uh, without getting the value. That's for sure. And I think the amusing thing here is going back to the mainstream media. You know, they like scare stories and bad news stories, which is why they attacked the regulation in a negative way. And why would a regulator bring in something that makes you less secure and gives you more risk? That's ridiculous. Crazy. Isn't but it? on the other hand, I think what was interesting is that um, no one talked about what's going to be the benefit here. 
And when you look at what can happen with the Tencents, the uh, Alipays, but also obviously the Amazons and the Facebooks, they'll start to leverage that access to data and really start to give benefit to the customer, which, which will be the draw. Well, so on FinTech Insider News on air a few moments ago, Jason was talking about uh, the adjacencies to banking. What are the things just outside of banking that could be uh, really, really made better? So what are the things in the gaps of all the service gaps that a bank has? I think about small business banking. We talked about this on 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 air as well the gap between a bank and their customers getting larger and larger and larger and you've got platforms like zero and intuit that play there and the integration between those is horrible surely that's low-hanging fruit surely those sorts of areas where there's a big gap between a bank and their customer is is the obvious place to be playing we just had a nordic finance meeting uh, last week in oslo where nordia were talking about uh, open apis and the examples they kept giving was um, taking an instance of something that happening today like you crash your car and saying, think about all the APIs you could link into that incident and give the customer a great experience. As in, you can order them a taxi, order them a tow-away truck, bring all the things in automatically mm-hmm. as part of the service to the customer. It's, it's that experience that they have yeah, to focus it, on. We, we talk continually about APIs not being defined by the technology, but by the end-to-end journeys they enable. Because if you look at Uber, which is a great API business, whatever you think about the ethics of the business as a whole, the fact that you can have a an app that then talks to the phone for GPS location, pulls a Google map, uses internal APIs for the cars, does Braintree for the payments. Actually, it's this seamless chauffeuring experience, but it's API driven. And so to go to end consumers, I think it's really jumping the gun to start pushing open banking to them, just as it would be if I don't know, Mifid or any financial regulation in the background. Because what we need, this was an industry thing. It's like talking to someone about HTTP or mm. TCPIP. It's like, who cares? Or but I love Twitter technology. or I love uh, Facebook. So, you know, there's an industry thing here and the, the great value propositions are to come. But at the moment, it's just scare stories. Yeah, it's not the regulation or the technology, it's what you do with it. So it it's going to be it's going to be a balance, you know, yeah. whilst maybe explaining to a regular consumer that why open banking is so great, etc. They don't care. But if they read that it's bad, there's yes. going to be something to counter that to yeah. say, well, actually, it's good. And it has to come from very reliable sources, you know. And I think it's hard to say it's good without being able to show people why it's good. That's the difficulty right now is i can tell you it's going to be good but i can't put the equivalent to facebook on you know or uber in your hand and just show you it i can tell you trust me it's gonna be great <laughs> uh you gotta go with me on this I'm i don't know nerd. get somebody who people like yeah. some celebrity or something you know we need yeah. like the kardashians no, or like, I'm, saying I'm not a fintech kardashian no yeah yeah we we just need like some super celebs on instagram saying wow look i'm just logging into this open banking thing it's a secret that the user propositions are going to come out in a month's time get on the waiting list it's going to be amazing sounds like an ico the other you just mentioned adjacency because i think the other announcement in the last couple of weeks was um the Amazon uh, store without checkout and I think there was an Apple one coming quite so I think if you one of the biggest opportunities is if you get these stores transformations it's going to require different payment platforms new APIs to support that so I think you're already seeing other industries which are going to actually say actually I need you banks to behave very differently if I'm going to have these types of customer journeys with checkout without checkouts so you don't need merchant acquirers you need real-time payments 
lots of incremental payments as you're going along. So I think that Amazon journey is going to drive quite a lot of change. Yeah, they say that when technology becomes ready, it becomes in- invisible or transparent. And I, I guess that's what, what this is about. Like when open banking is there, uh, we don't actually see it, but we do see the, the use cases. And I would say that the merchants are, are at the top of the list. Like merchants should be excited about open banking mm-hmm. and looking at those uh, opportunities. No, I think that that identity is really interesting just because suddenly in the UK we've got 65 million people who have proved their identity for a bank that now have arguably an online identity because of the ability to for people to to log into that loyalty and uh, rewards and all of that side of things never mind the the third party payments piece which could completely undermine Visa and Mastercard in terms of brand new payment uh, schemes that are, that any any large merchant could say actually don't pay me with your card click onto my app pay me and it'll come directly from your bank account and for that we're going to give you this you know this offer this new reward and away you go i mean that's that's crazy if you pick the top of the long tail of utilities and uh, retailers that that could really have an impact and uh, point to sale lending on top of that as well you could do a whole bunch of stuff but yeah. don't worry guys um there's uh, there's going to be the first open banking unicorn so according to uh, tech world so true layer are going to be it and true layer is similar to twilio or stripe but aiming to take advantage of open banking so this is one of these api platform services you would go, a bit like stripe.com right you go there and you uh, have access to the data and the payments apis that have already been approved um, as a uh, account information service and a payment information service provider um is, is this is that it is that the answer to our prayers have we got the platform now we've got stripe.com well i, I think it's obvious that a platform will will come and somebody will uh, manage the complexity of the current open banking and and that banking platform will be a unicorn for sure but i think there are several spots on that game i'm not sure if true layer is, is going to be the only one yeah, there's Bud, there's Rails Bank, there are many more coming, I'm sure. I don't know. I'm I'm fascinated by this because uh, I don't know enough about TrueLayer, but I'm I'm cynical about the um, having to bring all of this together and manage it. What are they actually managing? Because Twilio, actually behind the scenes, is managing all kinds of telco infrastructure. Where actually TrueLayer is layering on top of APIs that arguably should be consistent across the UK. You know, yeah. infrastructure in theory, yeah, arguably. So, in theory. so there is something about how similar they'll be, and also whether that's European wide. But, but equally, we've had like shims of all kinds of APIs that then let you plug into various different mapping services or various different whatever the service is. So, uh, you know, are these guys here to help me with the regulation? Because that's still going to rely on the the third party being on a registry somewhere. So, I don't know. I'm not sure what what the value proposition is. Maybe you guys know better. When I, I mean, I when I looked at it, I, I, that was my question because I've seen because I worked previously in retail before banking, and you had a whole wave of these companies coming in. That you end up with APIs, with intermediary APIs, saying, "Don't bother to build it yourself; I'll translate it." Mm-hmm. And there was loads of them, but I'm not sure they've ever really exploded in size because it's actually a very easy service to repeat. So if you're going to be a unicorn, you've got to have some real novelty, and 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 this is interesting, but it's not a real novelty so i think the the point you made earlier about identity i think that's an interesting area where there will be a debate around the security of your identity and the person who nails that then i think that's going to be a really interesting opportunity but i'm not convinced about 
uh, an, e- an API broker as being There's a also unicorn. an interesting th- aspect to this, um, both with APIs and cryptocurrencies, actually, in that Goldman Sachs just came out and said that um, you know, most cryptocurrencies will disappear and then there'll be one left or two, like an Amazon and a, and, a, and a Google from the internet, but boom. I think the same will be true of APIs, that there'll be one or two that really break out like Stripe has already. Um, and what they'll be doing and who they are, we have no idea. But right now, there's probably 100 companies all developing an API around open banking, of which one will actually produce something really amazing. And they're already off to the races. Well, it's going to be fun to watch, but certainly banking chiefs are calling for regulation of tech giants getting into banking. This is on the FT, submitted to Fintech Insider News by our own Alex S. Uh, and this is uh, kind of uh, the BBVA chairman, uh, who we've we'd, uh, sort of uh, met a couple of times, I think, Jason, um, called on a global body such as the G20 to take action, saying authorities need to bring order to this massive change that could pose risk to financial stability and fears that Amazon and Alibaba and Tencent could replace banks. If I need capital to lend, then let's have the same rules for everyone for internet giants too. Calling for changes for law and greater regulations of tech giants and the data they hold. Wow. This is the first, I think, banker to come out and say, the tech giants are coming. I can see them coming from my lunch because of open banking. This is going to happen. He's been saying it for a while. Yeah? Yeah. Because, I mean, about three years ago, Francisco Gonzalez said that in about 10 years, there'll only be 50 banks left in the world, and there'll be global platforms and big players. And BBVA wants to be one of them. What's interesting about this is that if you look at Google, for example, rigging the shopping searches, so you shop in their stores than other ones, or equally Facebook with fake news. You know, platforms have to be regulated, and that's the same with uh, any platform player. I mean, Jack Ma says that they don't, they don't manage Alibaba, they govern it, which uh, is an interesting turn of phrase. What is interesting for me about this, though, is that there was another article that came out this week about BBVA's tech approach and they've got 11,000 software developers and want to take a lot of their risk and frontline staff and turn them into developers and the total number would be around 30,000 of the 140,000 BBVA staff. Uh, Francisco Gonzalez has also said that they are a digital platform company rather than a bank. So what's really going on here is positioning for the next wave of competition and saying if we're going to have financial services built into platforms, those platforms have to be regulated the same as a banking platform would be regulated versus a social media yeah, company's regulated. because I think, and I spoke to Francisco Gonzalez at BBVA event. I managed to get to interview him on stage. Amazing guy, 73. The bylaws say he has to retire at 75, but he's not one of these guys that's like, I'm in it until I retire and I'm, you know, just having an easy path. He's He really is looking at the six-month time horizon and 30 years and, and where is this all going? And I said to him, because he, he'd made a lot of changes. The CEO he bought in, he's brought Derek White across, he's brought all kinds of digital people to do digital things. I said, you know, when did it occur to you that you needed to make this change? And he said, 2007. He became chairman of BBVA in 2001 and realised that he'd recruited all these amazing guys, top bankers, and then he realised in 2007 it wasn't top bankers that he needed. That actually he saw, even from that, 10, 11 years ago, that he was starting his plan on, actually, this is about a tech platform business. I need to start replacing people at the senior levels of the organisation. It's a point I keep making about the lack of diversity at the leadership team of most banks because Mr Gonzalez started life as a computer programmer, so he understands tech. He's had yeah. professional technology expertise, yeah. as is Carlos Torres, Derek White, and much of the leadership team. But if you look at most banks, it's a, 
run by bankers yeah. who have no technology knowledge or experience, and therefore, how can they convert themselves into digital banks? I, I think it, it is a it is a key point, though, isn't it? The, is the threat to the banks fintechs, or is it the big platform players? Yeah. And if you just, I, my favourite example is Paytm in India. The rate of growth that's got. I mean, it's huge now, and it's got as many users as probably Europe now. And therefore, actually, a platform player like that coming in, so our conversation around the the API player, well, if all the banks got APIs and somebody comes in and just takes them, with the, who is already at that scale, then that makes a big, big difference. And I think that's really the big threat to the banks. The counter to this, I think it's fascinating, is this this um, announcement from JP Morgan, and they're going to go and team up. So I think there's a debate, isn't it, to how do I get rid of them, but also, actually, if I can't join them, beat them, can, can I join them? So, And I think they're... So for my feeling is there's going to be some big moves. I think the banks are going to have to make some big moves in the near term. What do you think, Tanya? Oh, um, absolutely. Well, last year, Cybos had uh, a panel discussion that was all about fearing the big tech. And everybody on the panel agreed, and they were all, I think the majority of them were from big banks, that it's not the fintechs that are the threat, by, but uh, the big tech guys, you know, your Google and Amazon, etc. And yes, I absolutely agree with Chris saying that it has to be, reg- the platforms like that, they have to be regulated. But the way it's driven and the way the banks are driving this kind of call for regulation, mm-hmm. uh, you have to question, are they doing that to genuinely protect the system and the consumer? Or are they doing that because they're protecting themselves? And by doing that, they might harm the consumer and the choice the consumer might have. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Like, um, it may be a call for protecting the industry, but... I still think that uh, people do need uh, that regulatory uh, protection. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff that can go wrong once that data gets aggregated. Says the man who works for a bank. Yeah, <laughs> in, in a creepy way. I, I meant in a creepy way. So, yeah, I, I think the regu- regulation should be called for um, for the bigger players as well. But, uh, but the big tech companies don't want to be regulated even as publishers of data. I mean, under the reason they've been able to grow so far is uh, they're not regulated like a book publisher would be. Uh, they don't have the, uh, under Section 230, and uh, I think it's the uh, Commerce Law that was passed in 96 by the Clinton administration, they are not publishers. They are not liable like a publisher would be. That is why they've been able to grow at the scale that they have. They definitely don't want to be regulated like a bank is. But does this mean open banking is an opportunity? And is somebody like a J.P. Moore Morgan Chase, seeing that opportunity to be one of those global banking platforms by actually inviting the bank in. If you are a great platform, if you can operate at scale, if you can get tens of billions more transactions around the world and one of those tech players was your partner, that's opportunity, not risk. But do you want to be the hungriest cannibal? And I think if you do, then maybe this is an opportunity. And I wonder that BBVA have kind of seen it more as a pushback than a than a make it happen sort of thing. Um, I'm going to move us to the next story because um, we're pushing against time. This one is about TSB investment in the small business sector. Uh, so this was on Banking Tech, uh, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Tanya. Hey, hello, Tanya. Uh, so Tanya so, has to talk about it. Yeah, so Tanya, um, TSB are going to invest $100 million into the small business sector. Well, small business sector is currently super, super hot, right? Everybody's doing something so around right it. Now. Yep, I, I feel like I should break down, break into song or like a rap or something. Feeling hot, yeah. hot, hot. <laughs> well, Chris did it for me. So, um, yeah, so TSB has the resources, you know, has the support of a massive 
you know, Spanish banking group. And they also have uh, a really good strategy in place, you know, and an opportunity to get part of those RBS funds. Uh, so good on them because we all know that big banks have traditionally been very mean to SMEs and uh, in the UK at least. And now there are lots of smaller players coming, you know, that want to take that share like your Oak North and your Tides and um, Counting Ups and the rest of the world. But for a big bank like TSB to come along and say, look, we have all this money, you know, and we are kind of good and we are ethical and people love us and we are going to be very um, sort of responsible, etc., etc. Yeah, bring it on. And this is equity funding, isn't it? So they're actually buying shares in these small companies, um, funding them with that focus. And they've got an initial tranche of 30 million. But they're also, uh, you mentioned the RBS money. So this is people can bid for money that RBS are giving to the market as a part of a deal with their failed attempt to shed 300 branches. Yes. So RBS tried uh, to separate the Williams and Glynn subsidiary. So they spent a lot of money, something like 500 Billion, did they? Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, wow. Painful. I think there was like about thousands of um, tech people from Infosys that were working on the tech side in India and something like that. And still, you know, that didn't go anywhere. I think IBM was involved as well. So anyway, so... Throw enough people at it and, oh, it still didn't happen. Yeah, so eventually they had to write it off. So uh, RBS had, as an alternative, had to set up this fund, you know, that the banks that offer current accounts for small businesses can bid for. And TSB is bidding not for one, but for three, uh, three funds, I think 100 million, 20 million and 60 million. So don't That's know how much hurt. Gonna, I mean, if you're RBS to fund your competition and to smile as you hand over the money, like that's got to hurt. But the rider behind this as well is that the Parliament have got an investigative committee right now into RBS and their pra- practices over small businesses because they've actually been uh, forcing a lot of businesses, small businesses um, in their global restructuring unit to go out of business and then get their assets on the cheap and sell them, right. which is boosting profits um, and boosting bonuses. And it's not good for the customer. Allegedly, allegedly. allegedly of course. I mean, it's an interesting cycle back to the previous thing about platforms because actually all the banks are very focused on uh, small businesses but amazon are very focused on small businesses so a lot of the stuff that the banks wanted to do in trade finance all of a sudden amazon's coming out with trade finance offers in two small businesses Mm -hmm. so again it's a sector the banks would like to go into but actually it's probably a very easy sector for the the big platform players to get into wouldn't you just love wouldn't you love amazon to apply for one of these uh, grants <laughs> that would just be crazy that'd be lovely but again you talk about trade finance sme sector it's that gap between the bank and their customers small businesses struggle with trade finance buying from the other side of the world from somebody you don't know who might also be a small business is difficult without a bank and banks turn you down if you're a small business and what's really interesting here going back to your comment cliff about amazon is and, and same would be true of alibaba and a number of others is that when they are offering trade finance to small businesses, they're not doing it to give them finance. They're doing it to give them money to get more business on their platform. So their focus is to get more sales and purchases for those buyers and sellers on their platform. And the loans can be given for nothing. I mean, PayPal give their merchants loans for for no interest to get more money on the platform. Yeah, I think TSB is going to be one to watch. I mean, I'm actually a big fan of Richard Davies. He's been on the show a couple of times and I've never met someone who is now like so evangelical about helping small business and driving this thing through. So he's left another big bank. He's joined this. It looks like he's been given the remit from the CEO and they're making some really interesting moves. So I'm It's I'm going to be interesting to, to watch. And in fact, we have a soundbite from Richard so we can hear more. 
I'm here with Richard Davies, who is Commercial Banking Director at TSB. Thanks for joining us on Fintech Insider. Thanks, Sly. Great to be here. Cool. So we've been uh, discussing the latest news about TSB's pledge to invest $100 million into the SME sector, uh, with the first $30 million of that being deployed uh, via Blue Waves. Uh, I know you're a real ambassador for the SME sector, and you see it as a somewhat underserved market. Could you tell us one, why is this sector important, and why do you think it's underserved? Yeah, I think it's the lifeblood of the UK economy. Uh, SMEs since the financial crisis have created most of the jobs that have been created out there. And I think there's a kind of challenge out there with helping SMEs to really thrive and become more productive to support the UK's economy going forward. So it's kind of why I feel really passionate about helping here. And I, I think that the big five incumbent banks just don't really pay enough attention to the, the real micro-enterprises and, and small businesses that are the heart of the UK economy. Completely. So this boost in funding that we've talked about, um, you know, 30 million through Blue Waves and potentially more elsewhere, uh, what's that funding going to go towards? Yeah, so I guess we're trying to think pretty differently about what needs to be done to help SMEs to thrive. Things that's long been an issue is how do fast-growing small businesses get the equity funding they need to grow, particularly when that's less than 2 million quid. There's long talked about equity gap out there. And that's particularly true outside London. London's got a pretty good VC scene. But you go to, say, Birmingham or Edinburgh, there's some great efforts going on for some of the local governments there. But I think there's a real need to help supplement that with private sector funding. Absolutely. So um, if that first 30 million is coming through Blue Waves, uh, what's, gonna, what's the uh, rest going to go to? Yeah, so what we're saying here is we are committing 30 million immediately as, as a group. Um, and then over time, uh, we will scale it up to 100 million. So right. it's, it's really all part of the same piece. Um, but the first commitment is 30 million. Right. So it's just sort of almost like a trenches thing. Uh, so uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you bid for some of this funding? Because the funding looks like it came from uh, a grant from RBS. What did that process look like? And what was it like taking uh, kind of money from a competitor almost? Uh, so, no, we are very much um, keen to be... Uh, leading the charge on the RBS remedies grants that are upcoming. Those haven't happened yet. Um, so this is actually our own money um, from our group um, where we actually do this already in Spain. And so one of the first things I wanted to do is see if we could bring that um, expertise and capability to help small businesses we have in Spain to bring that benefit to the UK. So very much all our own money here. Oh, very interesting. So that wasn't clear in some of the media reports I'd seen that this is definitely your own money and quite separate to, to the grants. Uh, I'm curious to know um, what kind of impact this might have had with, with the parent in Spain and uh, what sort of impact you're hoping to have uh, here in the UK with, with this and uh, you know what, what small businesses can do to find out more. Yeah, so uh, Sabadell in Spain, which um, bought TSB in 2015, um, very much at its heart is an SME bank which is one of the things that attracted me to, to come here. Franchise in, in, in TSB with the, the brand and the physical presence and, and brought competition on the consumer side with the highest net cash switches on the on the high street in the last three or four years. But the thing here is with um, that sort of SME ethos from Sabadell, a real desire now to build out in small business banking and also finally uh, freeing ourselves of the shackles of Lloyd's uh, Lexi RT platform uh, I think we've got a chance to mix up the market now. Go for You've got a chance to mix up the market. I like the sounds of that a lot. So where can people go to find out more uh, about that if they're a small business and they're looking for some funding? 
Yeah, listen, I think um, we are building towards um, a kind of full relaunch early in the second half of this year. Um, we will not be just doing that in one big drop. So we will be constantly um, announcing new things. Um, we are hoping to move at a pace no one's ever seen before from a major bank. Um, so I think watch this space. We will be putting out announcements probably every two or three weeks um, during the whole of the first half as we build towards that that relaunch. Very ambitious. Sort of things that we've not seen before. I like the sounds of that, Richard. Thank you for joining us on Fintech Insider. Great. Thank you. It's time. This episode is sponsored by TopTal. And to find out more about them, we spoke to Jeffrey Fieldman, a TopTal consultant. What TopTal is doing is it's going out and it's finding the absolute top talent in each industry, whether it's designing, whether it's engineering, UX, UI, or in my case, in finance. And then what it's doing is turning around and, and offering our services, our collective knowledge to those entrepreneurs in need. Over the past 10, 12 years, I've worked across five or six different industries, starting out in real estate, then in banking, moving into private equity and venture capital. I had worked for HSBC, for Morgan Stanley, and I can honestly say that interviews at both of those banks were far easier than, than a top tell. And, and I really say that, although laughing, in all seriousness. So how do top tell match clients and consultants? It turns out it isn't as simple as just matching them. The process is also rigorous. So I need to understand, you know, what is your company? What do you do? Who are you and how did you come to the idea of this company and really understand where this company is going? I'll then try to figure out what are your goals. But it's really an interview both ways. How are different points in my background applicable to this opportunity, to this job, to this engagement, and how am I going to help you solve for your goals? And again, from my perspective, if I feel that there's not much value I can add to you, the client, or to you, the potential client, uh, I'm always upfront and, and will say that right away. I love TopTel as a platform. It really allows me as an individual to apply the skills and apply the information that I've gathered over the past, uh, over my career history, and be able to help entrepreneurs. I think that that's something so visceral and so intimate because you are working with an entrepreneur who is building their company, right? For exclusive access to the top talent in designers, developers, and finance experts, click the link on the show notes or visit toptal.com. Thank you, as always, to our sponsors. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can connect on Twitter at 11FS team. Uh, you can find us at 11FS.com or just send us an email to hello at 11fs.com. Uh, the 11 media team who produce this podcast also produce InsureTech Insider, uh, bringing you the latest news and insights in the insurance industry, uh, as well as some of the human stories and social impact behind those policies. It's on iTunes now, so please do check it out. All right, on with the show. 
China are apparently cracking down on credit scoring. This, again, was in the FT, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Sharon O'Day. Uh, China cracking down on credit scoring. It's ref- it's reining in efforts by Tencent and Alibaba to create contentious social credit scores from data on purchases. Um, and their tri- PBOC are trialing their own credit scoring system, and Tencent had to pull their beta test after less than a day after accusations of jumping the gun. Uh, Chris, I'm going to throw this one to you. Yeah, I mean, there's been a social credit score discussion for quite a while now by the People's Government of China. And the aim is that you can see how trustworthy someone is by their language and behaviours in social systems like QQ and WeChat and start to say, if you're showing bad behaviours, then actually we'll be watching you more closely. Um, And what I find intriguing here is whenever we talk about the Chinese internet giants, everyone goes, oh, run by the government, scary. But do we not believe that the NSA get access to our Facebook profiles? You know, come on. So... And the American um, social media giants are just as scary in that sense. And what I think is interesting here with China is that this is something I've talked about for a long time, is saying, for example, when a child becomes an adult, they get their first bank account. How do you know what their credit line is? Well, let's look at their social media usage and how trustworthy they are and how popular they are. And that will determine their first line of credit, for example, which is the sort of thing that China is going to start trialing. Indeed, and I guess um, this uh, kind of accusation of jumping the gun doesn't mean that they're having second thoughts on that system at all. In fact, if anything, the opposite. It's just who gets to provide the score was the argument, and it's actually going to be nationwide by 2020. And it may be that all of them give scores or pull the scores into a government system. Yeah, to me, this is a sort of a look towards future, what what will happen elsewhere as well. Like, uh, we are being reduced down to the Uber rider score that we have. And I, for one, will plan to be more careful in, in Airbnb and Uber I, going forward. I'm a 4.9, so yeah. <laughs> I know my rider score. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But the point being that uh, a lot of these platforms will be aggregating data, like we discussed about the SMEs having loans through the platforms and so forth. And the data that these platforms will gather will play a significant role going forward. But does this not turn it into a Black Mirror episode mm-hmm. <laughs> where you're being super careful and actually hiring a coach to tell me what to put on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and what to say to Uber drivers in order that I can earn more money? Does this not create this real, really sort of false veneer of of something? Is it not another system to gain? Well, I, yeah, maybe maybe if you talk about the social networks, I, I don't think there's much credit where the information there, to be honest, but, uh, you know... The the different agreements and, and deals and uh, marketplace transactions that I perform, those will be very, very valuable to be aggregated into credit scores. Mm. We've been, um, there's a, we've already seen it here, there's a fintech we've played around a bit called BI, and they're quite interesting because they give you, they take the normal credit score and then they overlay a social credit score on top of it. So I, whilst this, I was looking at this thinking that's interesting, but actually there's already platforms out there that you can get in the US and in the UK, which are a combination of normal credit score and social credit scoring. I wish I would remember the startup, but somebody was granting uh, business credits uh, based on TripAdvisor scores, uh, which seems totally ad- uh, you know reasonable. Like the better you're serving your customers, the better you should be served as a loan as well. Wasn't it in TripAdvisor that um, somebody got the best restaurant in the world and it was a shed in Essex or something yeah. because somebody gamed the system to the point hey, where sheds in Essex are pretty amazing I'll, I'll have you know but um, but look this could all be happening in your home market soon uh, Christian because uh, Alipay has done a thing in Finland um, on banking tech 
submitted to Fintech Insider News by Tanya. <laughs> it seems like it's the source of all the news. We should all just go there and live there. Um, Alipay crosses the finish line. Yes, I see what you did there for cashless payments. Um, so Ant Financial's mobile payment platform, Alipay, reveals that a group of Chinese travelers have uh, concluded or finished. Um, nice one, Laura. <laughs> The first ever cashless journey to Finland with all transactions made by their Alipay accounts. Finland becomes the first country outside of China where all transactions can be completed using Alipay. And it's in a partnership with, uh, can you say this for me? Airpassi. Uh, Thank you. Um, as well as Santa Line, the taxi and bus service to Lapland. So where will they go next? Are they, are they seeing Santa? Yeah, well, I, I actually had to call to the Rista and the guys... Um, in Finland uh, to, to hear more about this story because uh, you know first of all for me as a Finn this uh, story of first ever cashless journey sounds pretty plain uh, like I, I've lived <laughs> in Finland for my whole life and um, for seven years I haven't used a single cent of cash so you know it, it seems ridiculous to me but uh, you know in all fairness what they did was they used Alipay all around so mobile payments uh, for everything that they did so they they saw reindeers and paid for, with Alipay they they ate reindeers and, and paid with Alipay again and and they saw some auroras and so forth so clearly you can do this in, in some of those uh, uh, touristy hubs. Uh, I'm not sure whether you would survive uh, across the country, though. Yeah, I think I think it's to report about cashless, though. I think um, the Nordics are the most cashless areas, and I yeah. set myself the mission about okay five or six years ago to say actually I would go cashless in Sweden. I could do it all the time. You didn't need any cash. So again, it was a bit of a non-story to me. But I think it is down to the fact that Nordics and um, because they've always had this common identity through the NETS program on banks, they're the ones in the biggest pan panic about open banking because they're the ones who are going to be the most easiest to disintermediate the banks there. So I think we should watch the Nordics as the place where open banking will land first. But it's just that next step in Alipay and Tencent's global domination. You know, oh, let's p pick some places where Chinese visitors can actually use their their card, their Alipay account. And eat reindeer. And eat reindeer. Yeah. And before long, they'll be eating the, the card schemes of those countries. Oh. Mark my words. Because it's that first step. You allow Chinese visitors to and then... You're Reindeer and then, uh, and you, then you let you let people you know, finish people uh, take uh, an Alipay account and suddenly away we go. Yeah, and that's a perfect strategy for creating the trust. Like uh, the quote, the discussion that I overheard in in an airplane in Finland, uh, there was two merchants discussing about the latest things that they did, and and they were bragging about integrating Alipay to their processes. Like that's the only th way way to secure the customers from Asia. Um, wow. And yeah, it's a true thing. Like it it starts to creep in. But there's um, a really interesting, interesting story around this, and it is a big story, which um, you know, Christian and OP Bank hosted our Nordic Finance Innovation Meeting last October, I think it was, and Epazi presented the Alipay story. And so basically it started in June 2016 when they signed a contract to be the Epazi uh, partner with Alipay to allow Chinese tourists to come and use Alipay in Lapland to begin with. And they were live by October, so less than four months from contract to being in production. October 2016, 55,000 Chinese tourists came to see Santa Claus and stayed th um, twice as long and spent three times as much. 
And now Alipay is across the whole of Finland with the expectation that Ali Tours, the Alibaba touring company, will bring 8 million Chinese tourists to Finland in 2020. There's 5 million people who live in Finland. So this is quite a lot, but small by Chinese numbers. Um, And the day after I heard all this, I was in Stockholm chairing a meeting around interoperability between mobile wallets in the Nordic region. And we had Swish from Sweden, CO2 from Finland, uh, Vips from Norway and MobilePay from Denmark talking about the fact that you have to use a different mobile wallet if you're a Danish person going into Sweden. You know, go, go through the tunnel from Copenhagen to Malmo and you can't use the same app. 60 kilometers. Go from Beijing to Lapland, 6,000 kilometers, you can use the same app. So after I heard that, I said to Risto, um, who's the CEO of Epazi, the partner of Alipay, why don't you put a local language Swedish Norwegian front end on Alipay and then the, you know, all the Nordic people could use the same app? And he said, well, that's what we're going to do. Right. Wow. I, for one, welcome our Alipay overlords. Indeed. Yeah. Tanya, what, what do you think? Well, th- this story provided us with lots of puns, you know, just for that. It, it was, of course, uh, sort of a bit of a marketing, you know, exercise for Alipay because they ran this social media campaign. They picked these tourists, you know, there was a group of them, you know, they took them on a specific tour. So, yeah, it, it was quite controlled. Uh, but either way, I am very kind of happy with Alipay spreading its influence around the world because yes on the one hand there is you know domination and monopoly and all that scare but on the other it's a great option for consumers to pay it's easy it's fast and uh, if it gives an opportunity for Chinese people to see the world and spend their money you know and the Chinese sort of middle class is growing and lots of spare money to spend and those countries you know benefiting from that where they're going so so be it. And I should know. say the first English language case study on Alipay, 30,000 words, appears in a new book called Digital Human by Chris Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> Which is of all good bookstores now, I believe. Um, on the downside, you've got the dystopian social credit score. On the upside, you've got Chris's book. So uh, it's, it's good times to have. It's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to watch this one. And because we had, uh, of course, the, the CEO of BBVA earlier in this show, we were talking about him maybe pushing back against tech companies. Uh, here you have a classic example of one of the tech companies that people have now finally started to pay attention to as maybe being somebody that could come and disrupt. So I'm going to move us to the next story um, from uh, one sort of uh, side of the world to another in uh, in a German challenger bank, Penta. Uh, this is uh, in TechCrunch, submitted to FinTech Insider News by, well, the co-founder of Penta, Luca. Shout out, Luca. Uh, the German uh, digital-only bank account for small businesses raises 2.2 million euros in a seed funding. So they're going to um, hire a few more people specifically around product development and growth. Um, and part of the round is going to be building out a marketplace of third-party products, including automated accounting, low-cost foreign exchange, and multiple MasterCards with limits and permissions. And the CEO there says, we want to help businesses get off the ground as quickly as possible without them having to worry about the banking bureaucracy about paying for pesky fees. That's why Penta is free and open to use. Um, and as a reminder, if you're unfamiliar with Penta, you can check out how it looks uh, and works using 11FS Pulse, which is our competitor insights platform. We've got lots of journeys on there and you can see uh, what it's like to use Penta for yourself. Uh, so you can go to 11FS.com forward slash Pulse to find out about that. So what do we think about Penta, everybody, in the small business sector? Maybe Jason, you can uh, take us uh, on, on the journey. Um, I mean, we know Luke and uh, and Lav pretty well uh, and I wish them well but that's a tough market I think they're going to find it 
a, a tough market to go to go at. They've got to really push for uh, very fast market penetration. They've got to really actually spend a lot of money in order to acquire a lot of customers quickly. Because I think there are, you know, there are 10, 15 banks, startups taking aim at this sector as well. And it's going to get very competitive very quickly. It's interesting you say you've got to... Uh spend a lot of money to acquire customers quickly do you have to spend money to acquire customers though or can can somebody who gets the brand right the meaning right viral growth right maybe do it a different way chris i was just going to say that penta's mastercard needs to look different to transfer wises <laughs> <laughs> oh that was the story yes of the day um, there was in, even a whole announcement about it i think quoting both you and me is saying and, and you guys i think too saying you all noticed the similarities. It's quite yeah. similar, isn't it? So what do you think about small business? But I, well, I think the interesting piece is the accounting point. I think one of the biggest challenges for small businesses is accounting. And actually, strangely, um, my, my parents ran a small business and their biggest worry was the VAT man. And actually, if you could get it right to say, actually, I get my accounting, so it's all seamless and I don't need to worry about these things. I think there is an offer there. But I think the point you said is you need to get it right because actually if he gets it slightly wrong, then um, you're not going to make it easy. But I think there is a big market because it is the, the there's a disproportionate amount of energy in a small business to just do basic stuff. And if but he's going to have to choose his partners really careful to make sure it's seamless. But big big opportunity, but it needs to be seamless. I would very much agree. Like uh, you know, integrating the accounting is serving a, a sort of a purpose, and from that standard, I think this is more underserved than the the sort of traditional targets that uh, the neo banks are targeting at. So, are you looking at me there? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't mentioned one, so have we? <laughs> um, we nearly went a whole episode without yeah. saying the M word. Yeah, but but what makes me wonder is that uh, will will it be the accounting softwares that will will start to incorporate finance software or, or finance uh, features like cards and such, or will it be the other way around? Well, like almost definitely. I mean, we I think spoke to the I don't know some of the one, some guy from Product on Zero quite a while ago, and that's obviously just a massive uh, play for them. If anyone set up exactly, if anyone set up to be the control panel for a business, someone who's already doing a lot of that accounting already, especially with PSD2 coming along, where you can actually make payments from the platform and import uh, transactions seamlessly, then suddenly that that opens up a whole, you know, you've got trade finance or you've got invoice financing within the platform. And, and there's also an, another big player here we, have, we haven't mentioned, which is um, Holvi. We had AJ from Holvi, the CEO, talking again at the OP Bank um, day that we had last year. And what was interesting there is that Holvi's now built uh, an extended small business ecosystem that wraps around the whole thing without being a bank um, to provide you with all your tax planning and f um, your, your whole cash flow forecasting, everything. It's about that gap between the bank and their customer. Everything's in that space. It's open banking. It's uh, it's small business banking. Everything's in that gap. And maybe there's one more playing in that gap. Um, Digit. Uh, so submitted to Fintech Insider News by Bob McLean. Shout out, Bob. Uh, Digit are redesigning their app and they are ditching chatbots <laughs> so they launched in 2015 to help young adults get in the habit of automatically saving and the ceo says we think chatbots haven't lived up to their promise and we are done believing that they will <laughs> they're redesigning the whole app to remove the chatbot interface that was their whole usp in the first place Shh. are chatbots dying is user experience having a shake-up hello my name's chris how can i help <laughs> hey for one story about removing the chatbot, I can give you 20 stories 
from all over the world about banks and financial services, adding chatbots to their platforms. So I think the jury is still out. I they don't... love big chatbots and they cannot lie. <laughs> I mean, chatbots was just such a, a new interface. They were so in vogue. Everyone wanted to do a chatbot. Ultimately, often without an end user value proposition is like chatbots. Why isn't my digital team doing one? I want to see one next week. Um, but ultimately, better be on blockchain. Yeah. Well, exactly. Well, it's the same thing. It was that technology-driven, how are we going to use this? And they're great when you're using them within existing platforms, within WhatsApp or Facebook or somewhere where you're chatting and you want to, to trigger something. They're not so good within a specific app or to replace a graphical user interface for a lot of things. And I think... A lot of places just went like way too far, way too quickly. Like this is the next generation thing. We're going to lose graphical user interfaces and apps. It's like, no, it's not. It's just not true. There's a, a different voice, if that's a pun, but there's just a different a different way that chatbots are useful, a different platform they're useful on. They're not context. a replacement. No, a most of the context. chatbots are, are basically point solutions. So you have a customer journey. So I'll fix that little bit of it. So it's sort of it destroys the seamlessness to a degree. Yes. And I think you're right, there's a big wave at the moment, but the big wave I'm seeing at the moment is all the banks saying, well, I've got this judgment journey. It's broken in these five places. If I stick an AI machine learning chatbot in that bit, I'll save a bit of money and sack a few people and the whole thing will be better. So, <laughs> but, but, but that's the wave at the moment. And I, but as a... As the front end to the magical user experience, I don't, I don't think they're going to be there. The conversation interfaces, the real voice speaking, you know, the Alexas, the Google, it, that's eventually, where it's yeah, going to spot you know, for, for now, as we've been using chatbots, I think we've been wasting our energy with the NLP things. Like most of the stuff that we've been exploring in OP Lab uh, have been functional when we just follow the forms that are provided by Facebook Messenger. Like we've done this one thing for uh, the local pizza chain in, in Finland, which works phenomenally and solves the problem, meaning that with two clicks, you can order the usual. And and that's the solution that it delivers. But I, I fully agree. <laughs> yeah, like people are going to look for the most efficient UIs in every single thing. And and in most places where we offer chatbots, it's everything but. I love that, though. It's just stealing with pride. It's it's uh, So there's a story here from Leda Glyptus, and I love me some Leda Glyptus writing. Um, and this was submitted to Fintech Insider News by Dan, and it was on Bank NXT. And she said the you, uh, the banking user experience revolution happened when you weren't looking. Uh, and the, the example she gives is on removing legalese and heavy terms and conditions. Uh, the quote from her here is, don't get me wrong, the revolution isn't the design, it's the belief that there's another way that doesn't make the customer feel small when faced with bureaucracy. It's in the belief that things can be serious and important without being foreboding and scary and i think that what you were saying there about like people want the easiest thing possible they they, they yes they want to understand consequences yes they want to be aware of them but they don't want you to do that by you covering your own arse with long t's and c's like that's not good product design arse covering isn't good product design putting the customer first is good product design well we often we talk time and time again about cargo cults mm -hmm. you know you get to this thing where you're you don't you're not enlightened in digital you're just taking the doctrine and the dogma everyone's got a chat bot we should have a chat bot why should we have one oh i don't know we should just have one you know uh, but rather than that that felt sense of how are we delivering services to customers how are we addressing the most brutal facts of of their life and those little things on actually i just want to order the usual pizza and i just want that to be easy and i think we 
people just continually either forget that or get enamored with the with the latest thing or the latest trend or some article about some some new technology or design principle i think it comes back to an awful lot of what we've been saying about open banking and apis and everything else which is focus on the customer journey like, like uber did exactly and build something that gives the most friction-free process for the customer the most common uh, sort of engagement that we're doing at the moment the most common pieces of work are about jobs to be done mapping it's about going back to the start and saying Saying, okay, normally your banking app or your thing offers this amount of, uh, of functionality. And how does that map against NatWest or RBS or whatever? But actually, when you look at the jobs to be done that are needed, you know, is my salary in? Is it not in? Has it changed? Uh, am I going to have a month where suddenly my annual quarterly and monthly bills all hit at the same time? Like 50, 70, 100 jobs around particular things that everyone needs doing. And yet that's a very different way about thinking about banking and financial services. And I think it's interesting that I, I want to echo that cargo cult point because you said um, customer journeys the amount of people that can tell me that they're doing customer journey thinking and that they've produced a persona but a persona is misleading right yeah. so doing that design thinking stuff without having understood the job I think is actually distracting you from the point having a having a Mac having like nice clothes having a beanbag and having personas on a wall and with some wireframes and not doing good product design i think there is a difference between that and really understanding the, the funny thing there is showing my age unfortunately but for 25 years now i've heard on the circuit every single banking presentation customers don't wake up in the morning and want to make a payment they want to get whatever they're paying for uh-huh. customers don't wake up and go i want a mortgage yeah. they want a home uh-huh. and i'm going i'm oh, not this again because i <laughs> <laughs> But that's the cargo cult point. I know. But I think the one thing I would take out of this is there's this point on T's and C's. And I think that's the threat to the big platform players. You mentioned Uber a lot. I, if you read the terms and conditions that Uber, you sign up to and you get Uber, they pretty much give you, you're giving away every right to your mobile phone to Uber. And the, you, that's the challenge at the moment. So if the banks have got here, that's what's going to come back to the platform players. You know, you think how many times we're asked by Apple, will you just sign up to all sign up to it? And it's those rights of access to data in the platform players are things we're probably not aware of, which actually, if they were much more explicit, you'd actually think twice about it. So I think that's that's quite an interesting dimension on this that we should think about. What are, what are, the, what are we signing up to when we're signing up to these big platform players? Interesting thoughts. All right, so our and finally story this week is about ATM thefts. Story on Business Insider, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Laura. Laura, again, you're two in one show, doing well. Um, not only are you putting the notes together, you're also submitting the stories, doing it all this week. Is she week. biased? It's like picking out something. Yeah, no, I picked only the stories I chose. Next, uh, next week, it's eight stories by Laura. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So a number of uh, jackpotting hackers have stolen over a million dollars from ATMs across the US. So coordinated groups of hackers have been attacking ATM machines all over the US to steal cash from them. They've been able to hijack ATMs by gaining physical access and using special equipment to trick the machines into spitting out cash. To execute the cyber attack, a thief needs physical access and will use malware hacking tools or both to take control of the machine and force to dispense cash quickly. Machines running Windows XP have been reported as the ones at most risk, <laughs> but Windows 7 isn't safe either. I love that this story is really about just upgrade your goddamn software, people. <laughs> Patch and upgrade your software. So I'll tell you the best thing about uh, ATM theft, though, is in my local town, somebody stole the ATM with a JCB. So they stuck oh, wow. a JCB old school, oh, yeah, old school through the, uh, the, the building from the roof, ripped it out, 
put it on a lorry and drove it away. So that's that's ATM theft. Oh, yeah, I think that was, I live in Kent, and that happened across Kent as well a couple of years ago. It's nice to have a good old-fashioned story here, you know, that's not just all cyber and digital, but actual cash, you know. So who says cash is dead? It's you, very you know, much alive. You know, they were wearing black with the ski masks. I they so. had, like, yes. little foldable keyboards. I can see the movie now where they, you know, throw some uh, interface that's not a real computer but just looks like it, and then suddenly, ka-ching, 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 out comes the cash on the oh, other side. Oh, I also hope that when they brought it back home, they were like, throwing it around and like <laughs> swimming in it and everything you know <laughs> some seedy motel somewhere just swimming in money we're rich we're filthy rich but we're also probably caught on cctv <laughs> and would it be a sad thing if you didn't all that effort like the jcb through the store and found that it was just you know, 15 seconds before the machine was going to be reloaded yeah. so it, it was empty <laughs> That'd be that'd be terrible. All right, well, on that note, that wraps up another week's news. Uh, so I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Let's start with Tanya. Right, so uh, www.bankintech.com for all things on fintech, paytech, and other interesting stuff. And in lots of news. stories about Bitcoin volatility, I guess. Oh, well, <laughs> absolutely. And even some satire too so yeah so think daily mash but for the fintech world oh i like the sound of that how about yourself cliff um www.capgemini.com at cliff evans 7 clifford evan clifford.evans at capgemini.com don't use cliff it doesn't work and uh, don't fall off that cliff already um and chris what about yourself uh, I've got a revamped personal website that's just been loaded called chrisskinner.global as I'm always travelling as I'm always travelling uh, well that's true it's probably the only way to find you as well as thefinancer.com is there like a little tracker where it shows you where you are across it's the like globe it's a Santa tracker but with Chris's face yeah. uh, it's actually I'm, I'm trying to find if I can get a Tesla Roadster at the moment and, <laughs> <laughs> and just, just get into space Elon's left that's one up the idea. there yeah. so uh, Christian how about yourself uh, ob-lab.fi and uh, I mostly hang up in, in Twitter so K-L-U-O-M-A is my K-L-U-O-M-A yeah correct awesome uh, and Jason uh, well, you can find me here, like, most weeks, most of the time. Just come up, we work in London, that's what you're going to do. Yeah, there's lots of we works, so that's not really helped anyone. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> you can find me at Jason Bates on Twitter. Brilliant. And you can find me at SYTaylor or email me, simon at 11fs.com. Oh, you get to add your email address as well. Well, you're Jason at 11fs.com. Uh, Chris at 11fs.com. <laughs> uh, you... Can I get in there? You can do it. We'll have to share it. We'll have to share it. There's also Laura and there's a whole bunch of <laughs> Laura, I imagine you're getting spammed out. Uh, as always, if you like what you've heard, please come talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to get in touch. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening and goodbye.